You can go ahead and be turning back to Matthew chapter 5. Yes, we are still there. And yes, we will still be there unless Caleb does something really crazy next week. And like speeds through. So last week was Easter and, and I thought that the passage we were doing was very fitting for Easter in that we were looking at Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had ever explained, everything the Old Testament had ever asked of us, we were able to see that, that Christ saw himself as the ultimate authority, right? He stepped in and said, I'm going to explain this to you as the ultimate authority for how to interpret what God's intent was in the Old Testament. And as we move forward, as we continue to move into throughout Matthew chapter 5, and really through the rest of Jesus' teaching, He's not teaching us anything new. He's not revealing to us anything creative in the sense that he's showing us something that God had never explained about himself before. Because God has revealed himself completely and fully throughout the law and throughout the Old Testament, throughout the the, the prophets and the teaching that came to the people. God has revealed exactly who he is. And what we're going to continue to see is that he's not changing. He's not becoming something different, right? We just sang, you stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes, right? He has not ceased to be one thing just because Christ has stepped into society, into culture. Just because Christ is here does not mean that all of a sudden everything is completely different. Instead, it just means that Christ has made everything make sense. And now through the rest of chapter 5, we're going to get these little individual snippets, these little individual glances at what that means, what that looks like. Some examples so that we can understand more how to interpret what God says. Like, it's, he's basically going to be giving us great examples of better ways to read the Old Testament law or to read basically anything in the Bible. He's going to try to get us to look more at what the spirit of the law is. What is it that God is revealing about his character in each of these Old Testament passages? And he's going to do this by kind of setting up a bunch of contrasts. If you really want to get, I, I like, it said in, my, in, my, in one of the commentaries, they called them all these antitheses. And I'm like, that sounds really smart. So we'll call them antitheses. He's got like five, six, seven, something like that. Little contrasting points that he's going to set up for us the rest of the way through chapter 5. So go ahead and turn in chapter 5 to verse 21. And we're going to just look at the first one of these today. So Matthew 5, verse 21, uh, he picks up and he says, You have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and, you, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Which is ironic, because if you're in jail, you can't really earn money. Right? So let's go ahead and look at this. So, so Jesus is going to set up this contrast, and he's going to use the same method every time he approaches it. You've heard it said, like, you have heard teaching about this Old Testament passage 
in this instance, is talking about murder. You've heard everybody says, you shall not murder. If you don't murder, you won't go to jail. Or if you do murder, you will be punished in some way. Right? There will be a response to murder. And what he says is, it's more than just the act of murdering another person that makes you liable to judgment, right? Jesus isn't just looking for, and we kind of talked about this last week, Jesus isn't just looking for outward action or outward avoiding certain actions. He's not just saying, I want you to just do this or not do this. Like, like if you don't do this, you have earned my favor by virtue of your having not committed some crime or committed some atrocity or or in this case, killed another person in a sort of like premeditated fashion, right? That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about like this idea of premeditated murder. So he's not contradicting the Old Testament, but he's clarifying. And in all of these, it's not that he's giving a new intent for God. It's not that he's correcting what the Old Testament kind of left, you know, kind of un explained. It's instead that he's correcting. And all these, he's not setting up contrast with the Old Testament, but instead he's setting up contrast with mishandled interpretations of the Old Testament. So if anything, he's challenging the teaching of the day. He's challenging, like we said last week, he's challenging the scribes. He's challenging the Pharisees. He's challenging these people who have been teaching Israel what the law means for all these years, because he's saying they have made it far too simple. They have, they have, they've backed off from what the intent of this law actually is. He's saying God's intent is not just that you would not kill, but that you would not put yourself in a position that would lead you to that action. Like, like even before that, the heart of the law is not just that you wouldn't do this one thing, not just that you wouldn't murder, but instead he's intending that they would not even be angry with somebody else. They wouldn't hold, you know, ill feelings against another person in their heart without dealing with it, right? He's saying, don't, don't even be angry with your brother for a long time. So Jesus is attacking kind of this outside-in mindset for how to approach the law, this idea that, that if I do these things with my actions, the things that, that people can see, then the inside of me is going to be seen as favorable to God because I'm doing all of the right things. It's not, it's not that we do these actions on the outside and then all of a sudden our inside is, is cleaned up and made perfect and we're, we're able to you know, interact with God and be in his family. Instead, he's saying it all starts on the inside. right? Fix the inside. God fixes the inside. We have a new heart. We don't, we don't harbor these hateful feelings toward another person. And as a result of that, we don't commit these actions that are also offensive to God. So he's saying... And here's a great example. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, so what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is um, God is picking a new king. He has rejected Saul as the king. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to this guy Jesse's house. And he says, I'm going to pick a king out from among his sons. And so Samuel walks up and Samuel says to Jesse, hey, the Lord has found favor with you and he wants one of your sons to be the next king. So if you could uh, bring your sons out, I'll tell you which one it's going to be, and we'll anoint him the king. And so Jesse, of course, starts with his oldest son, and he brings him out, and he's this, this, this massive buff guy, much like myself. It was not a... Thank you. We'll get to the guy that's probably more like me. <laughs> and he brings out these, these tough, you know, strong fighters, warriors, 
And, and, and Satan was like, that's the guy. Surely, God, that's the one that you're going to make king. He looks like a king. And God says, nope, that's not him. Move on. And so he kind of goes through all of these different sons, and eventually all of the sons have come through, and each time Samuel's like, oh, that's surely the guy. And then God says, no, move on. And he says to Jesse, um, Jesse, do you have any other sons? Right? And Jesse says, well, I have one more, but he's kind of, he's kind of a soft-spoken little wormy mama's boy. That, that goes out and plays his guitar for the sheep. Right? That, that's basically who that son is. And he's like, go get him. And as soon as he comes walking in, God says, that's the guy. That's the one that I want. That's the guy that I'm going to make king. And he says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees... Sees not, man, sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what he's saying is, it's not about just these actions that we take. God is interested in getting to the heart of what the law says. The heart of what the... Like all of these actions are reflections of things that are going on inside of us. To murder somebody doesn't just come out of thin air. It's, it's built off of something, Right? And Jesus is going to start kind of stepping back to all the different, through all the different layers that would lead somebody to murder another person. right? But what he's saying is, it starts on the inside. God doesn't just look at the actions that you make. Later on, Jesus is going to call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. right? Like, you look all clean and shiny on the outside, but on the inside you're nothing but death. Right? God is not interested just in our actions. I could give you a ton of moral things and we could look at all of these morality things that are stated throughout the Bible. And I could say, if you do all of these things, God's going to love you. But that's not true. That's not what he's hoping for. That's not what he's, he's looking for. He wants our hearts first. And out, of our, and out of the expression of our heart will come the actions that are pleasing to God. So if there's a key theme to remember through the rest of Matthew chapter 5, it's that God looks at the heart. God is looking at our heart in all of these things, I'm giving, you, I'm giving you your main point the rest of the way, right? Unless you do something, like I said, really ridiculous. Don't do anything really ridiculous. So moving specifically into the idea of murder, he says that, that at the base, murder is, is the result of harboring hate, harboring anger against another person and not dealing with it. The, the emotion behind, your murder, behind murder is, is harboring hate against another person. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he's saying, if you are able, if you think of it this way, if you are able to harbor these kinds of feelings against another person, this rage that you are unwilling to relinquish, this hate that you feel towards another person, then you are a murderer. You have the heart of a murderer and you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, he's saying, my people should not be known for the things that they hate, for the things that they are angry, the people that they are angry with. And I think there's a distinction to be made between being, being I guess, angry at the fact that sin is rampant in the world and, and then being angry against another person and not seeking to reconcile the difference. There's a difference there. Because see, we see examples of Jesus even being angry. Like when he walks into the temple and sees 
the atrocities that are being committed in the place that's supposed to be meant for worshiping God. And he starts turning over tables and yelling at people and saying, what have you done to this place? I think there's a righteous place for anger to be used to show how, how overwhelmed we feel about wanting to see God glorified. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about anybody who, who harbors these feelings of hate against another person and is unwilling to let them go and is unwilling to reconcile and is unwilling to work to, to improve that relationship like he talks about at the end of the section here. Those are the people that he's saying, they got no place in the kingdom of heaven. Because those are not my people. My people don't do that. My people seek reconciliation, which is the word that he uses later on. So what about hate, anger? These are internal things. What about those things is so offensive to God that it would send somebody to the same judgment as somebody who would murder somebody else? Just because they harbor some feeling in their heart, just because they haven't physically hurt somebody, why is, it, why is that so offensive to God? What about that angers God to the point that he later on says he would send somebody to hell? Because to harbor these feelings makes light of another person as an image bearer of God. We've talked about this idea before, about about God creating all of us in his image, in his likeness. We are like God. We all have equal value in that we have all been given a portion of the image of God. We are to be his representatives on earth. And to take that away, to, to in a sense, dehumanize another person, to, to make light of them, them as a created being made in the image of God, made to reflect who God is on earth, is offensive to him because he's saying you are you are not only making light of the value of this person but you are making light of who I am because they are here to help represent me murder itself is dehumanizing right to justify killing another person you have to make them unimportant you have to devalue them you have to take away what makes them human. Which is interesting because that's how the conversation, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, current events, that's how the conversation changed with regard to abortion, right? Let's first, let's first take away personhood from the unborn, and then it's okay to kill, who, kill whatever you want to, right? They're not people yet. They're not human. They don't, they don't have any significance, any value. It's just a thing. It's just an inconvenience. It's just something that I don't like, I don't want. So, so if you are to murder somebody, or as Jesus is saying, if you are to even just harbor this hatred, this anger against another person, you are basically saying, I don't value them as a human, as an image bearer, as a representative of God on earth. You are, you are taking away who they are. And that's why, in this example, he's kind of stepping back, right? He's, te- he's taking steps slowly back. So, so murder is preceded by anger. And, and, and then he goes to even just name-calling, right? If you read in the, I think it's the NIV, 
it has a couple of different names. In our, in, I read in the ESV, and he said, you fool. But also in there he says, if anybody calls their brother Raka, some of you might have that word in there. Uh, so both of those words basically mean um, empty-headed or moron, right? Those words, when we translate them, that's where we get the word moron. So he's basically saying, if you say that somebody's dumb, if you say that somebody's stupid, if you say that somebody's empty-headed, they're just a moron, right? He's saying that, that, was, that was so offensive in the culture that he's speaking into because, because somebody's name, somebody's name kind of encapsulated all of their whole identity. Like, like if you strip my name away and you replace me with this kind of alter-egoed, less important person by giving me this name. That's what he's saying name-calling represented. If you call somebody a name... You're basically take, stripping away who they are and replacing it with a devalued, to be disliked, unloved replacement. Which is the exact same thing that he's been saying alongside murder and anger. You are devaluing the person that you are talking to. You're stripping away somebody's identity and replacing it with an offensive substitute. Um, so who here likes theater? Who here knows the story of the crucible? A couple of us. I got to go see that when I was an undergrad because my theater teacher said, you have to go to a couple of plays to get grades. So we went to the crucible. It was at ETSU. Actually a really interesting play. In this, it, it, kind, of, it kind of follows the timeline of the Salem Witch Trials which is where all of these people were, in a sense, pretending that they were witches. And the town got so caught up in the emotion of, is this really witchcraft? We should start hanging people. That it became anybody who was accused of witchcraft, whether they had, whether they had dabbled in it at all, which in the end it turned out it was all just this big hoax if you wouldn't recant your sin, right? If you wouldn't say, I recant the witchcraft that I've committed just because you were accused, right? Then, then they, would, they would hang you. If you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't, you know, confess to this sin, right? I don't know if anybody's been ever asked to confess to a sin you didn't commit, but it would be really icky feeling. So in this story, you're following this guy named John Proctor who's not at all like bought into this. He thinks it's all kind of hokey. And throughout this whole time, he's just kind of seeing this from a distance. And about the third act, all of these people try to drag him into this and they accuse him of being involved in all of this witchcraft and, and, and he's committed all of this stuff and he's done this and he's the one that's made us start doing this, really. He's the problem. And there comes to this and then he gets pulled into into court, right at the very end of the play. And they say, you need to confess this. If you recant and confess, we won't hang you. And he says, fine, I confess. I did this. I recant. I would never do this again. Are we good? Can I go? And they said, no. You need to sign this confession. And he said, and, and I think in the play, he, like writes his, he writes John. They say, we're going to need your whole name on this. And instead, he tears up the paper and is hanged for something that he never did. 
And you say, why would he do that? And, and he says this line. They say, why won't you just sign your name on this piece of paper and this can all go away? And he says, because it's my name, because I cannot have another in my life, because I lie and sign myself to lies, because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them that hang, how may I live with my name? I have given you my soul, leave me my name. So he's saying, my name is who I am, and it's all I've got, my identity. And what Jesus is saying is, to, to, to give somebody a new name is so offensive because you're stripping away all that they are, you're devaluing everything about them that God has made important and valuable and beautiful and useful for His glory, right? And He's saying, to dehumanize somebody to that point is the same thing as if you'd killed them. And it's just as offensive to God that you would do that. That you would say, you have no value, you have no importance, you are just another thing that is annoying to me and I would rather be rid of you. Do you view people that way? Do we view people? Do we realize that we do that? When we make light of somebody else, when we make light of the situation that somebody's in, or when we, when we hold on to these feelings of anger against another person, do we realize that that's what we're doing? That we're saying, you are not as important to God as I am. Or, or you are not a, an accurate representation of God, so you are worth nothing and I am worth something. Because that's essentially what we're doing. We are, we are saying, it, it would be better if you were dead. You are not here. Because you are so unimportant to me. So ultimately, the root cause of murder is the dehumanization of God's image bearers. Right? That's what he's getting to. That's the, that's the point that he's kind of stepping back to. He's saying, you think it's just this action, but it's this idea of devaluing other image bearers of God that is so offensive to him. So instead of dehumanizing and separating ourselves from others, Jesus tells us, he's telling the disciples, he's telling his followers, us, the church, he's saying, you need to value reconciliation. We, hopefully here, of any other church, ought to value reconciliation. Right? It's in the name. We're going to read the verse that we got it from in just a second. What's interesting, though, is that reconciliation is the responsibility of the offender to make right what was broken. He's not saying, if somebody, he's not saying to the person who has been wronged, make sure you make this right with the person who sinned against you. He's saying, if you are one of my people and you recognize that you have wronged somebody, it is on you to seek them out and make it right. And it's not just we want to go from being an adverse relationship to being kind of back to just this kind of neutral place where we can, we can exist in the same place and we're not going to like, you know, come to blows, right? He's saying, this is a different kind of picture that he's painting. He's saying, I want you to move from an, um, an adversarial relationship to a friendship level relationship. It's not that we're just fixing something that's broken and it can go on in a neutral sense. It's we are going to make it into a positive thing. Be reconciled means be brought together. Family, friendship, these same ideas that we talk about when we talk about God is growing this church. He's bringing this church together like a family. 
It's the same kind of idea. So he's saying, he's saying the opposite of, of murder is actually this idea of reconciliation, building into a positive relationship. Even to the point that he's saying he would rather see believers leave the altar, stop worshiping for a little while. You're just here, he's thinking, you know you've done something and you would rather be here to cover up the fact that you've, you've wronged somebody. He's saying, it's better that you leave for a little while and go make right what you broke than fake it and stay here and try to cover your tracks and try to make people think, oh, well, I saw him at church, so everything's good. He's saying it's not because God sees our hearts. He sees what's going on inside. He knows what we've done. He's saying it would be better for you to leave a time of worship to make right a wrong that you have, you have committed. And then come back and worship. Then bring your brother back with you and y'all can worship together. Right? Because he's saying, if you have this, this unreconciled thing, then what good is your worship if it is fake? If God knows what's going on inside. So we're supposed to build friend, family relationships, even with our enemies. Even with the people that we would, we would hate, we would be angry with. He's saying, we should not be known as the people who stay angry and harbor these these hateful feelings against somebody else, but instead we should be seen as the people who seek out and reconcile. It's in the name. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what's interesting though. Because remember, I, I said he's putting the responsibility of reconciliation on the offending party to go to the offender, to go to the offended, to make it right. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The irony of this whole thing is that we understand reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God by Christ, and yet we were the offenders. Yet God was the one who was offended by us. He has no reason to reconcile with us, and yet, and yet he seeks us out. So, so when he's saying here, go and reconcile to this person. Go and be reconciled to this person. Don't, don't, harbor the, don't keep these feelings inside toward this person. He's not asking us to do something that's easy. He's not asking us to do something that he hasn't himself already done first. We reconcile because we have first been reconciled to God by Christ. This, this whole thing, this, this shift in our mindset, this, this change from from hating to, to rebuilding, to reconciling, to coming back together, is only possible because Christ has already done that for us. He has made it possible, and now He says to us, I'm leaving this responsibility to you. You are to be the reconcilers now, right? I, this, I love this verse. Where is it? In uh, 19, that is Christ. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making, God making His appeal through us. The way that we respond to these things, the way that we respond to this idea of being reconcilers instead of being haters, the way that we respond to this is the way that God makes His appeal to the world. He's saying, I am trying to communicate this message of reconciliation, but I am making it through my church. He could, he could communicate this truth to the world any way he wanted to. But instead, he said, I'm going to use the broken people that I have brought together for my purposes. I'm going to use them in a very specific way. I'm going to let them be the ones who carry this message for me. Do you recognize that level of responsibility that he's putting on you? Do you feel the weight of that calling? God is making his appeal through us. And then Paul follows it up. So we implore you. He says, please, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That level of emotion, that level of pleading, that's what we should feel. We shouldn't be the type of people who have had somebody offend us and we could, we could stay angry. We could separate ourselves from them. We could try to get as far away from it and just stay in that mindset, right? Just kind of let it boil up inside of us forever. Or we could be the kind of people who instead so want those people to know the love of God that we know that instead we go to them and we, and we reconcile, we, we make it right Are we those people? Are you that person? Do you have something in you that you are holding on to that you don't want to make right because you feel way happier? You're much more comfortable holding on to that anger. Not saying it's easy to be a reconciler. Look at what it cost Christ. It cost him his life. And it might hurt that much for you as well. Let's pray. God, I pray that that would be true of us, that we would be a people who are not known for the things that we, the people that we will not have a relationship with, the people that we, we wouldn't be known as the people who are trying to stay so separate from the rest of the world. But instead, that we would be known as the people who are running to the world and saying, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to have Him. And God, that starts inside. We can't just manufacture that feeling. Just like you said, it's not, it's not starting on the outside and then the inside kind of follows. But God, we need you to change us. We need you to give us a heart that would desire these things. So God, I pray that you would reveal in our hearts the things that we're holding on to that we need to let go of. Or or reveal to us where we have left some sin hanging out there, some some offense that we've committed that we need to make right. And I pray that that even now, instead instead of just continuing on with the rest of the service, just like we normally would, but that you would you would stir us up to make it right right now. 
if we've done something, if there's something that we need to, to repent of to someone else, that you would, you would make that so apparent to us. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for what you've done to bring us to yourself. And God, don't let us look too lightly on this mission that you have left for us. But instead, cause us to really look at ourselves and understand what state we're in. In Jesus' name, amen.